Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Rural Spark Podcast. I'm your host, Helen Murphy. You may have noticed that we haven't been on a regular schedule during the pandemic, but has anything really been on a regular schedule? We are happy to be back today with a story of legends and nature and beauty in an Indigenous tradition and how these things can be an important element of tourism development in rural Canada. This story exists because of the determination and love of legend of Marie-Louise Bernard, a Mi'kmaq storyteller from the Wamakook First Nation on Cape Breton Island. So here's Mary Louise to share her story and her vision with us. Good morning, Mary Louise, and welcome to Rural Spark. Good morning. So nice to be wherever we are. <laughs> well, we're all over Canada, right? Yes. Hello, Canada. So nice to be here. I like your energy, Mary Louise. And you know, we've had, I think you're the third or fourth. We've been at it just around a year now, and you're about our third or fourth guest from Cape Breton Island. So, you know, we, we see these certain areas, Kentucky actually, for some reason is one of them too, and the South Shore of Nova Scotia, where we see uh, pockets of really innovative things happening. And we have tried to talk about, of course, the role of, you know, our stories about history and culture, making our rural community stronger. And I came across an article about what you're doing and thought it would be a really interesting one to look at that we haven't really explored. And that's around the role of Indigenous history and legends and uh, culture in those, you know, strengthening of our rural communities across Canada. Mm -hmm. So you have a great story to tell. Can you, can you walk us through how you came to develop a Mi'kmaq legend into an interpretive program with Parks Canada? Sometimes when you start something and you don't realize where it's going to take you, these Big Water Maiden story was... Um, was my bedtime story. I grew up in a small Mi'kmaq community in Wamakook. 62 years ago, I was born. So I've been here for quite a bit and I've seen a lot of changes over my lifetime, especially in our First Nation communities. And one of the things that lucky to have was a mother that was so into stories. And being the youngest of the family, I was the one that got all these stories through a bet, at bedtime. And so one of them, Sweetwater Maiden, was my favorite one. And about 15 years ago or so, I was telling a friend of mine about my mother's stories. And so I went and I told her about Sweetwater Maiden's story. And my friend said, well, Mary, why don't you start writing down these stories? Because you're going to start to forget them over time. And I said, yes, you're right, I should start. And so um, I sat down and I started writing a few stories and Sweetwater was the first one that I wrote about because she was the love of my childhood. I always fantasize about Sweetwater Maiden and her journeys and then try to capture that story and put it into a children's book. That's how it started. And it was kind of, actually, I was traveling to Manitoba to a wisdom keepers gathering at the time. And I was sitting with a lady on the plane and I was telling her about this story, the Sweetwater Maiden story. And she said, oh my gosh, she gave me her email address and said, Mary, when you have the book finished, send me two books. And I said, I will. And that was back in 2012 and 2014. I was lucky enough, I got it all together and I said, okay, 
here are the two books I promised I was going to write a book and here are the two books that you wanted about Sweetwater Maiden. And so the first book that I wrote was, it was in Mi'kmaq in English. And then a few years later, I was going around the Cabot Trail because I live close to the Cabot Trail and I'm also a tour guide. So I do a lot of traveling around Cape Breton Island. But one thing I did notice during the time when I was doing tours around the Cabot Trail, there was very little Mi'kmaq presence in the area. And after I wrote the book, I approached Parks Canada and asked them if they would be interested in creating something along the Cabot Trail that would represent Sweetwater Maiden. I wasn't sure what I was looking to do, but we came up with a project and I worked uh, with Parks Canada that, on that project that year to develop interpretive panels along one of their trails at McIntosh Brook. And I also commissioned a local um, and Malaysian artist to do the interpretive panels for me then. So it started to pick up from there and that's how I got to work with Parks Canada. And it's been an incredible journey. Then my first year with Parks Canada, I decided to translate the book into two other languages, French and Gaelic, because Cape Breton is all, you know, the four prominent languages in Cape Breton Island, especially in the 50 years ago, were Mi'kmaq, English, Gaelic, and French. And I thought this would be something that would give the, the readers a more variety of the different languages that, are, that have been here in Cape Breton. Of course, Mi'kmaq has been, we've been here for over 10,000 years or more. And then, of course, there's English, French, and, and the Gales. I want to um, include that, the other three languages as well. It's given me a lot of opportunity to showcase the book and to um, make it and to present it in certain ways. It's a beautiful little story about a Mi'kmaq maiden going out in search of her grandfather and coming across this beautiful water that was coming from a tree, dripping from a maple tree. And when she started to boil her grandfather's meal, using the sap that she believed was water, and she noticed the flavor was different. And this is how they were able to recognize that this beautiful maple tree had a gift was sweet water that was, and it's um, when you look into sweet water or sap, it's full of minerals and vitamins and nutrition, and that gave my people the energy to revitalize themselves every spring, mm -hmm. drinking this beautiful sap that came from a tree that would nurture them back to health. It's a beautiful story. What kind of response are you getting from visitors to the uh, the Cape Breton uh, Highlands, the national park there? It's a popular place. How are they enjoying these stories? They enjoy them very much. What I do within my programs is uh, as a park interpreter, I have several programs I do during the week. I would know, you know, walk around the park and uh, meet the uh, campers and say I have a program coming on at 8 p.m. this evening. I'll be at a certain area. And I would bring my book and, well, a, a couple of books, and I would have one of the guests read in English and sometimes French. So I would have three of us reading. It would be read in English, French, and Mi'kmaq. 
because I believe language is very important of who we are and what we're bringing into our, the difference of our languages and who we are actually. But when we read in three different languages and one of my programs, is, you know, I find it so fascinating. You know, there are some travelers that are from Quebec that don't speak any English. So it's really nice for them to hear the story as it's being read in French. And of course I read in Mi'kmaq and my language is dying. And this is one way of trying to keep it alive by preserving it and sharing it. And I think in time, I, I would like to have a movie or a cartoon or something that would continue this story and even elaborate even more. I wanna pause briefly here to say a word of thanks to our sponsor, ExploreNet, for supporting the Rural Spark discussion. I think we can all agree that rural areas of Canada should have access to the same amazing internet and technologies as our biggest cities. And what's so interesting about ExploreNet, their network is bringing 5G ready tech to rural Canadians even before it gets delivered in urban areas. You can learn more and check out what ExploreNet services are in your area by visiting explorenet.com. That's X-P-L-O-R-N-E-T.com. You're a person of ideas, uh, Mary Louise, and I'm sure there's lots of uh, avenues that you'd be still interested in exploring. Do you think this is maybe an area when we look across Canada, you know, Indigenous communities across Canada, and we have our rural and remote communities across Canada, when we're looking at ways to build and strengthen our rural communities, do you think it's something that's often overlooked in kind of developing those plans on how to do that, that there's this rich Indigenous culture, you know, either right there or close by, and that that can be a draw, that can be part of the solution for strengthening rural communities? I think it is, because over time, we've always been, I don't know, in some way, we've always been encouraged to present our Mi'kmaq culture and traditions within our own communities. And when I started doing tours back in 2005, I left my community as a entrepreneur and I was doing tours and I went to places. I left the comfort of my home really and started going out and say, I have a Mi'kmaq tour company here and I'll take you around Cape Breton and I'll tell you stories about my culture within the outside of my, outside of my community. And one of the things that I've noticed was during when I was doing these tours that people were more receptive and they also had more questions they were more comfortable in asking me when I was doing these tours compared to if I was in my own community. I think some might, uh, they were, you know, they didn't want to offend me or I, th I, I think sometimes there's that barrier. They don't, how do I act in a First Nations community? Am I welcome to go into your community hall or cultural center? And I was surprised that yes, it's for the public. You know, we have gifts here and we have a restaurant and so forth in our community. It is open to the general public. And so sometimes people don't realize that when they're passing through a cultural community, a Mi'kmaq community that has a cultural center. Is it for them or is it open to the general public? And once they realize, you know, I was there, was the stores that we have are, are open and, that's the thing I found that when I started doing independent tours, personal tours and going around the different things uh, that the community outside of Wamakook, you know, we're asking and to invite them into my community, into our world as who we are as Mi'kmaq. We've been here for over 10,000 year, years and 
and that we operate similar to any other community. We have our chief as leader and our community has, and we have council members that run the administration part of our community. But there are elders as well that in our schools that where we are able to teach our Mi'kmaq language and store and continue with our stories, storytelling. So in your community, you're really breaking down some of those barriers, right? To invite people to come in and explore and get to know your indigenous community. And I'm sure that's something that you would recommend in other areas, right? That oh, yes. Yes, it's um, it's so nice because I love who I am as a Mi'kmaq. And I grew up in um, you know, my community of Wamakook is right now, the population is about 900. When you go back to 50 years ago, the population in my community was about 400. So it has increased a lot, but back 50 years ago, um, we were pretty well, kind of an isolated community. And my um, my mother, we didn't have, we had a, you know, back then TV was something that was on only a couple of times a week, black and white TVs, we had a TV back then. And so stories were very important and the elders were always telling stories and I was lucky enough that my mother was a great storyteller and I am both of my parents were, but my mother, I guess I was a spoiled one being put to bed and she would tell me stories every night about sweet water maiden and how this beautiful maiden would have journeys and looking for her grandfather. And also in the springtime, that's when she, my mother would come up with sap. You know, this is what happened, sweet water maiden discovered it while looking for her grandfather. I wanted to bring that story to life. And by creating this book and in my own language as well, I felt that this was the way it was told to me. And this is how I want to present it. And over time, now that I work at the park as well, I've developed programs in how to, how the Mi'kmaq were able to collect sap using um, hollowed out logs, and you know, using rocks, heated rocks to heat the sap until it boils or became a certain um, consistency. Oh, excuse my English. <laughs> I speak Mi'kmaq, so sometimes you'll hear that Mi'kmaq accent coming through. <laughs> no problem at all. Um, you know, and I understand, uh, Mary Louise, that you have other experiences with sharing your cultural heritage. In terms of when you were, you spent a long time actually being chief of Wamakuk, a First Nation in Cape Breton, and you helped establish the first cultural and heritage center at a First Nation community in Nova Scotia. So can you tell us about that center and how it's been received? Oh, yes. I was so, I called my baby. It's, <laughs> you know, we all have visions when we're, especially when you're in politics, you're leader of your community. You want something there that would highlight your community. And building the first cultural center, it was because I wanted to showcase the beauty of our culture, our language, our dances. And when the cultural center, we wanted to encompass that so we could have conventions, conferences, and events that we could host over 500 people in one facility. Yeah, and so it's been amazing. We have our own restaurant, and it's called Clean Wave, Wamek. Cool. An elder broke it down and said one time, Wamakuk means clean wave. Wamek is clean, Gu is wave. So it's, it actually means clean wave. And that's why, that's why we named our restaurant here in Wamakuk Clean Wave. 
So it's a translation of our community. I'm wondering, you would have gone through a number of steps when building a partnership to do the interpretive stories that you do in the um, in the National Park. When you do develop a partnership like that with an organization like Parks Canada, it could be with a neighboring community, um, municipal governments to each other. You have a lot of experience with that, including your term as chief. What do you think are key to making good partnerships grow like that to allow these kinds of sharings to happen? What do you think are the key ingredients to that? I think it's, um, I was so fortunate to meet the right people at the right time. When I met these ladies actually from Paris, Canada and told them, here's my book and here's my story. We walked through it and they fell in love with Sweetwater Maiden story. And they were actually very open to the idea of creating something because nobody has, I don't know if anybody previously has approached them, but I did. And I said, well, you know, I'm a Mi'kmaq and this is my story and would be great. I said, I'm looking for a home for Sweetwater Maiden, somewhere where it's beautiful, where there's maple trees and you could, there's hiking trails so you could feel connected. And that's when they said, well, we have a few places and one of them was the Acadian um, Valley in, at the park, McIntosh Brook is one of the oldest sugar maple stands in North America. And I said, yes, perfect. This is this is an ideal place where it's pure, is like to me, it's like sacred land when you go into the park and it's so clean. And that's what people are looking for. And to have um sweet water there as welcoming and showing visitors that this land was is the land of the Mi'kmaq. And here is uh, a story that you could go back into time and just by being in this sacred place, feel the energy from Mother Earth and the positive energy of just being around the natural world, you know, trees, the brook. It's just a beautiful place and to reconnect with nature. And I think that's really important. Beautiful. And you mentioned earlier, Mary Louise, some of the things that you'd like to maybe get into doing in the future to further share this story and other other legends and interpretations. What's next for you? What do you have on your your shorter term, maybe for the next year or two that you'd like to um, maybe get into as part of realizing that? Well, with Sweetwater, I think I still have a few more things I'm going to, I would like to see the story in animated. And I think I'll be working over the winter months and looking for somehow, you know, probably a partner that would be interested in doing an animated production of the Sweetwater Maiden story. And my bigger dream is to actually have my own cartoon of Sweetwater Maiden and her adventures and Disney at the final. That'll be the top of the iceberg. And maybe as we wrap up, Mary Louise, uh, you know, most of us don't uh, have a familiarity with your language. And you mentioned how important languages are. How do we say hello and goodbye? We say kwe, K-W-E, kwe. For both? Just hello. hello. There's no goodbye in our Mi'kmaq language. Okay. So the relationship just continues. No, it's at Namultas. We'll see you. We'll see you again. Ah. Wonderful. I like that. That's a nice ending for us because we do want to connect with you again, Mary Louise, to hear more of your story. So we'll see you again. Thanks. Bye-bye. And thanks to all of you for joining us this week. The Rural Spark team includes content producer Catherine Murphy and technical producer Tara Seabarth. Music by Jason Shaw. 
We wish you all the very best for the week ahead in your part of rural Canada.